This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Susan, you know, we all carry around different stressors, some big and some small. And sometimes they all tend to hit you at once on the same day. Yeah, like today. (laughs) It's not been a great day. More on that later on the show. But we all carry around these stressors, and keeping them bottled up can affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself and isn't just for those who experience major trauma. It's also for those who've experienced a lot of bad things happening on one day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash proof today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash proof. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There was no episode of Proof this week. We were off for the holiday. But be sure to tune in on Monday for episode 13 and find out what Charlie Childers saw on the night that Brian Bowling was shot. We do have a special episode of Proof sidebar for you, though. Jacinda and I spoke to Dr. Amy Banks, a psychiatrist, trauma specialist, speaker, writer, and educator, and we're very happy she's joining us for this episode of Sidebar to discuss a case that greatly impacted her life. On the evening of April 12, 1979, doctors Ronald Banks and his colleague John Hakala were attending a conference in New Orleans. And just feet from the entrance to their hotel, they were held up by two young men. A shot was fired, and Dr. Ronald Banks was killed. Isaac Knapper, a 16-year-old boy from a nearby housing project, was wrongfully convicted of the murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole to be served in the notorious Angola prison. But eventually, he was able to overturn his conviction and win his freedom. Years later, Dr. Banks' daughter, Amy, decided to look into what exactly had happened to her father. She was surprised to learn that the person she'd always believed responsible for his death was innocent. She reached out to Isaac, and he agreed to meet her. They formed a friendship, and Amy found herself writing a book with the man who was convicted of murdering her father. Their book, Fighting Time, is the story of two families whose lives were forever changed by the murder of Dr. Banks and their journey to find justice, forgiveness, and friendship. Welcome to Sidebar, Amy. Do you prefer that I call you Dr. Banks? No, you can call me Amy. That's good. Okay. All right. So if you would, tell us a little bit about your story, if you could summarize it for us. Sure. So my my story, uh, when I was 17, 1979, my father was a professor at the University of Maine, Orono. He traveled to New Orleans to go to a history conference. And while he was there, he was held up right outside of the Hyatt Regency and, you know, just a, uh, a robbery held up by allegedly two 
uh, black men and shot and killed on the spot. Um, so that's the murder aspect of it. About three weeks later, they picked up two young men, Isaac Knapper and Leroy Williams, and from my understanding, it is clear to me that they weren't there and that they didn't do it. But what also wasn't clear is, you know, why they were going in this direction in the first place, because they had evidence. Somebody had sent them information that there was a similar holdup with the gun that killed my father with two young black men that um, fit the description. And that information was sent very specifically to our detective, John Dillman, to say, hey, you better look into this. They didn't, in fact, and chose to go this route and take in these two young, again, also young Black men, 16 and 17. They then fed us lots of information about how sure they were that these were the guys and bad kids and they had been trying to get them for a very long time. You know, they really kind of built it up and, you know, we had no reason to doubt them. And so we didn't. And in October of that same year, eventually the detectives prosecution went to both of these young men and gave them both the same deal, essentially saying to both of them, we know the other guy did it. And if you tell on him, then your sentence will be reduced, you know, and when that uh, offer was given to both Isaac and Leroy, uh, Leroy took it, Isaac didn't, that resulted in Isaac being um, convicted in a one day trial of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. How Um, did Isaac and Leroy first come to their attention? There was a guy, allegedly there was a guy by the name of Tony Williams, who was Uh, As Isaac, who's now a friend of mine, describes it, he was, you know, maybe he was developmentally delayed or something, but it was clear that he was not quite right. But he knew Isaac, he also knew Leroy, and apparently what he did is he was in the vicinity at the time of the murder, and when the police went to him, I don't think it it wasn't right at the time, but either a week or so later, and began showing pictures of people. He picked him out of the lineup because he recognized him, um, recognized Isaac and Leroy and said, these were the guys that did it. That was the only mention. There was a security guard at the time of the murder who was literally coming down the stairs right by the opening where my father was, who got a look at the guys that were running away and said, no, it was not Isaac Knapper. You know, there were a number of people in his family that said, no, he was home that night. So there were other people that kind of provided an alibi, if you will, or a witness that said, no, it wasn't him. But it's clear in retrospect that the prosecution detectives wanted to get this off the books. At the time, the Hyatt Regency was only three years old. They were really trying to get people to come there. The Superdome was built and, you know, it was a big tourist thing. And my dad was a white guy at a conference. They wanted somebody. And that's You know, I have no idea to this day why they, you know, ignored this other evidence. Doesn't make any sense to me. And the timing is, had they already picked up Isaac and Leroy when before this other incident happened or? No, they hadn't. hadn't. They had not. Even though they had this other information, they, they still went after, wow. I don't get that. I don't know. I mean, there was literally uh, another detective who wrote a, in the police report that, of course, the, the police report that wasn't turned over to the defense 
right? This was the Brady material that the defense didn't get. But in that, I mean, this Sergeant Italiano had literally said, I am sending you this information because it reminds me of the description of the guys that you're investigating. I mean, he literally lays it out there and then goes right through it, including that they had the gun and that the ballistic test matched. The gun had five bullets in it. The one bullet that was missing was the bullet that killed my father. And they just chose to overlook it. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible. It is. Yeah. And I know it's really hard because what you know now, right? what you understand now is very, very different from what you knew and understood to be the truth then. I think I remember reading that the first time you ever saw a picture of Isaac Mm -hmm. was in the newspaper in Maine. Yeah, literally. Yes. Do you remember like seeing the person who you think killed your father and what that was like for you? Yeah, because I wasn't prepared for it. And it was in the Bangor Daily News. Nobody had told us yet that somebody had been arrested, right? And so there it was in our local newspaper, right, which is in Bangor, Maine. And on the front page, you know, this picture of Isaac with this detective Dillman and that this arrest had been made. And, you know, it's interesting. I I often think about that. I mean, it was shocking to see him. It was shocking to see, okay, this alleged, you know, I I didn't question it. You know, I figured if they've picked up somebody, of course they picked up the right guy. It never occurred to me or our family that there would be anything untoward going on at all, right? So I'm looking at, in my mind, one of the two guys. And a few days later was the, you know, also the picture of Leroy Williams being arrested as well. And so they had picked these guys up. And what's interesting, and this is just, I think, a quirk of mine. I remember just staring at it. It almost didn't compute, I want to say, you know, there was some short circuiting that was going on because it wasn't like I looked and was like angry or, I mean, I was more curious, like Hmm. what in the world would caused that man to shoot my father you know it was it was this weird kind of thing but at the time there was like you said there was no no doubts in your mind that it was the wrong person or they had made a mistake or no it never occurred to us and and it wasn't that it was neutral you know there wasn't they were saying we think we have a suspect it was we got the guy he's been in trouble you know all along and here he is. I mean, we, we were just fed lots of information. You know, it was just piled on. Right. So everything you're being told kind of supports this image of, of someone capable of, of committing murder of someone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and of course, it fit all of the stereotypes of young Black men. Right. I mean, you know, and we're up there isolated and, you know, yeah, we completely believed it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you talk about this picture and the case we're covering. Um, There's a color photo that runs in the local newspaper down in Rome. And the two boys are in their orange jumpsuits with handcuffs. And they're looking at the camera. And one of them, Lee Clark, I don't know, Susan, if you know which picture I'm talking about. He looks so angry. He looks angry. And people interpret it as if I was being accused of something I wasn't guilty of, I wouldn't look like that. You know, like there's people read into how you're supposed to look or how you're supposed to act or how you're supposed to, right. You know, behave in court. And, and I don't think there is any universal. um, Absolutely. And of course, if you're being wrongly arrested for something, why wouldn't you look angry 
or scared or whatever. I mean, right? Yeah, no, it, yeah, yeah. To me, both the boys look terrified in that photo, not angry, but you can read so much into it. You're seeing these kinds of images. Yeah, it's a cross section in time of a mess of a situation, right? Yeah, yeah. The other thing about your story that caught my attention when I first read your book, Fighting Time, is the parallels between you and Isaac, or maybe they're not actually parallels because it's very different worlds. But you're you're the same age essentially um, when Isaac is picked up and and when your father um, dies and your lives take very different yeah. paths. Um, I don't know if you could speak to that for a minute, maybe. Sure. You know, as Isaac and I have been you know going around and talking about it, this this is one of the things that I feel like you know, I want people to understand, right? Like we do these talks, I have a PowerPoint and I I talk about, there's this image that I show of Isaac actually in boxing gloves in Angola, right? At the same age, I am with my basketball team and I'm holding up a basketball because I've just scored my whatever thousands point or something. And the point I always make is neither one of us was guilty of anything right then. He's in Angola and So his next 12, 13 years of life was Angola fighting for his life every single day, you know, thinking he's going to die there, having no hope whatsoever. And I got to, again, not having done anything, I got to go to college and play basketball in college and go to medical school and go to get, do a residency and come out and learn and do trauma work. And so it's like, yeah, we just went in the opposite direction. And, and I think you're right. I mean, what, what, one thing that's interesting, and as I've gotten to know Isaac even more, and we've spent more and more and more time together, is actually how similar we are, right? I mean, it's cool. I feel like he's a bit of my soulmate, actually. You know, we're very similar in how we think about the world, how we think about people. He's got a huge heart. He, you know, he's always trying to help. So it, it, like the weirdest thing is how alike we are, you know? So I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's put on at all. And the parallels are really striking actually, you know? How long in all did Isaac spend incarcerated? He was 13 years in Angola. And then part of the story, Susan, is that he had come out, he was a, actually an amateur boxer for a, a couple of years. And then he was a professional boxer, ended up breaking his hand, you know, didn't get any money for his uh, wrongful conviction, of course, had no education because he, you know, I mean, these are all the lists of what he would say are excuses for a very bad decision, which is he eventually ended up selling drugs to try to support his family on a very large scale and ended up going back to prison for another uh, 17 years. He was 20 years. So he, he's been in prison a total of 30 years, but for the wrongful conviction he was in for about 13. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Rex Huerman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Huerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Huerman. Initially charged with three murders, Huerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the List podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Huberman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. I remember um, Isaac's mom, wasn't there a story, and we could, we could ask Isaac this himself, but um, where his mom had asked him just take the deal because they had threatened to kill him and they had beat him up and they had, yep. and and he, he did not. He said, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do, right? Right. That's exactly right. Is literally what, you know, when it was coming right down to the wire and, you know, for our side, right, this deal of like right up until I would say a few weeks before trial, we were then being told that even though they had the right guy, they might not be able to get a conviction because the one witness, I think it was this Tony Williams was missing and he wasn't missing. They didn't want to call him. Right. He was right in the neighborhood. They didn't call him because he wasn't going to be a good witness. Right. And so they were preparing my family that these two might go free. And then literally, like we, as I said, a week or two, the prosecution start offered this deal to both of them. And Isaac didn't take it. And Leroy Williams did. And then we got a call saying, hey, great news. One of the two that were arrested turned stays evidence on the other guy. And we're sure we'll get a conviction. And that was like about a week before the trial. It was all, you know, everything was all different all of a sudden. So did, yeah. and you said it was a one day trial. Did Leroy testify at yes. the trial? He did. He did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He, t- and just, you know, fed him the line. Yep. We were at the Superdome and it's crazy. I mean, we had, you know, finally, once uh, I met Isaac, we got a chance to look at the trial transcript and it's just horrifying. I mean, it's horrifying to hear the way they questioned Isaac, the, you know, the condescension, the way they were, you know, how they dealt with his family. I mean, it was, it's just, it's really sickening, quite frankly. And just to remind people, both Isaac and Leroy were 16, 17. Uh, I think Leroy was 17, Isaac was 16. And when the trial happened, Isaac had just turned 17. He had his yeah. 17th birthday, like a month earlier. I mean, they're, they're young kids, they're teenagers who are young with the situation and have no idea how to. No idea. Right. And Leroy Williams' mother also said, you've got to take this deal because they're going to kill you. Right. I mean, they will. They are asking for the death penalty. Right. And Isaac's mom did that. I just got a chance to talk with her about it. Actually, last time I was in New Orleans a few weeks ago and just crushing. Right. To hear this woman, you know, who's now in her 90s, who, you know, has raised these 10 kids and under just unfathomable conditions, trying to get him out of prison and having to actually say that to your son, like lie, right? 
to save your life, you know? And Isaac just was like, yeah, I can't do that. At what point do you find out that, yeah. that Isaac has been exonerated? So Isaac was exonerated in 1992 and my family, nobody told us that this had happened, right? So 1992, he's free. We still think he's in prison and we didn't find out until about 2004. And you know, we, we never would have found out had not my brother-in-law Googled Isaac Knapper's name and found all, all of this information. I mean, he just did it on a whim and out of the blue and found all of this information about his exoneration and what happened and the you know, Brady material and all of that. So we didn't have any idea until then, until 2004. Yeah. How, when you learn about his exoneration, are you, I mean, do you remember that moment or, or did it, could you believe it? No, 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 no. I mean, it's so far beyond comprehensible, right? I mean, and, and it was layered. It was layered. Part of it was, you didn't tell us, right? Like, I mean, so the first pass was, I have to say, and I feel a little ashamed of this at this point, because of course I know and love Isaac at this point so much. Like I wasn't thinking, oh my God, this poor guy has been wrongly convicted. That that grew over time. You know, it, it we were like, this is an open murder case. You know, we still have a murdered father and now we don't have any other clues. And so the rage at... That's, that's where my anger has come from and continues to be, which is the rage at a system that can set up young people, but also doesn't really give a shit about me and my family either, right? I mean, like, did they just think we would never find out? I mean, I guess. And at the time, you know, my sister Nancy particularly really pounded the pavement to try to get people interested and try to find out what the heck had happened. And, you know, and what we were hearing is, unfortunately, this is not uncommon in New Orleans, particularly. I mean, I, you know, I've since learned that this is an uncommon period, but that, that particularly in New Orleans and particularly in Harry Connick Sr.'s DA's office, this was par for the course at that time. But I have to say, I mean, for me, what it did is, you know, whatever you never put a murder behind you. I don't think, I just think that's impossible, but you learn to live with it. You learn, or you learn to keep going and, you know, okay, there's every April when the anniversary comes, it's just hell. And, you know, I mean, there's always the pain of it, but you, you kind of get to some equilibrium, right? Where, okay, this is horrible. It happened. But then to have the whole thing open back up. I mean, that was the thing that was just, it was just gut-wrenching. It was horrible. After Isaac's exoneration, was there any effort to reinvestigate the case? None. Nope. None. At all. They ever explained why that is? Or have you ever had a conversation with them about whether they intend to ever look into the case again? Yep. Nobody's intending to look into any case. Yeah. I mean, those were the questions that Nancy, my sister, was asking the DA's office. She went to the police department who said, no, it would be the prosecution, the prosecutions. You know, they punted it. We went to victims advocates. We went to the, it was, they had put in, I don't know what the term is, no law, no low something. I don't know. You're like, we're not going to prosecute, basically. So they made a unilateral decision to not try to investigate it. 
it's a, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, um, at this point, it's been 43 years since my father's been murdered, right? Um, I'm pretty sure uh, through conversations with Isaac and his friends and whatever, I'm pretty sure the three players who were arrested a week later, particularly this guy, Derek Robertson, who was a friend of Isaac's, are all dead. So in my mind, it's sort of like ugh, wasted money, wasted time. They, they can use it on something else. It is not going to change my life to know very specifically at this point who killed my father, uh, particularly if the three people that are probably most suspect are all dead. I don't have a burning desire to have to know that, you know, and in some ways that's probably, you know, forgive me, and I'm a psychiatrist, in some ways that's probably uh, a defense mechanism to say, you know, I, I just don't, I don't want to open it up. I don't, you know, I, I've. I've transitioned the story into, you know, it's kind of making lemonade out of lemons, right? I've transitioned into writing a book with Isaac and really trying to talk with people about wrongful conviction and how horrible it is and, you know, why it happens and justice reform and reconciliation and a whole bunch of other stuff. So would it be curious? Sure, I'd be curious, but it, it's not going to make or break my life at this point. And it doesn't offer me any healing. Back when Isaac was convicted, did you feel a sense of closure from that? I can't, I can't say that I felt closure. I, part, part of it is I'm, I was young, right? I was 17. My family was just, uh, just blown apart by this, you know, and we're still, we're still fairly blown apart by this. So, um, so there wasn't, I, there wasn't an idea of closure. I don't, there's never been closure, you know, um, you know, I, I think a lot at this point about justice and what is justice in the justice system, you know, and how unjust it is. And I, it just, you know, it just feels like the whole system is so screwed up at this point. I just, I, I don't, I don't have any faith in it now. And at the time, I think there was a little bit like, okay, this happened. And of course somebody gets convicted. So that happens, but the, I don't know that there was anything called closure. <laughs> yeah. So Susan and I look into cases that are possible wrongful convictions. So they haven't, there hasn't been a decision. We're, we're reinvestigating cases, um, which is very different from you who finds out after the fact, even when presented evidence, it's very, very hard for family members. You know, often it's like, we know it's the right guy and we don't want to talk to you about it. What is that phenomenon? Like, it's so hard to think that maybe the wrong person is convicted. Right, right. By the time... I found out and my family found out I was already pretty deep and steeped into it, it was it was a shock that it happened it wasn't a shock that things like this happened in the world and so for me I, I didn't at all have a what that can't be right I I had a oh Jesus really mm -hmm. you know kind of thing like here we go again you know, because by that time I really was aware of not, not, not the way that I am now, but certainly aware of what happened happens in the justice system. Right. So I wasn't surprised. I do think Isaac, you know, the way that I describe it is Isaac has been literally coded in my brain as the murderer, murderer of my father, right. Whatever the valence on that was, obviously it was horrible, but he was the murderer of my father, right. He's in jail for the murder. And I came home from that weekend with Isaac Knapper's phone number contact information on my cell phone. And I kept looking at it and it was this weird, like 
this is Isaac Napper, right? It's 36 years later. He has lived for all this time as the murder of my father. Now I've just met him. And he de- certainly developed a, uh, the beginnings of a friendship there. And so it, it um, you know, to imagine that you have a neural network that has been devoted to a the, the murder of your father, it doesn't change that easily, right? And I, and I can imagine that that is what a lot of people go through, right? If you don't, I mean, you've really lived with this, right? As a fact, not not a, an opinion or not a, maybe this guy killed my father, whatever. It was a fact. And I can imagine people shutting down, putting it away in a box, locked in, and that what you're asking them to do is unlock all of that pain, right? And to begin to revisit that. And I just think that is a tall order for anyone. Well, what, what's next for you and Isaac? What do you see in your future? You have this book. Everybody should go out and buy called Fighting yes, Time. It's called Fighting Time. So I'm in the process of going through. I, I'm, I've been wanting to make a curriculum to really use to kind of use the book in a talk that Isaac and I do. And we've been going all over the place, actually, giving lectures and teaching and that kind of stuff. But to be able to really have something very specific a curriculum for like high school and college students mm-hmm. to engage in the story and really, you know, kind of put themselves in this place. What would you do? In the case we're working on, one of the boys, Kane's story is interrogated two days after the shooting. And it's not a long interrogation, um, but over and over they say, tell us, tell us the truth, Kane, tell us the t- truth. And he keeps saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And then they say, everyone wants just Everyone just wants to get this done. We all want to go home. The family's grieving. We promise, we promise we won't charge you with murder. Just tell us you did it. Just tell us you did it. And finally, at the end, he says, yeah, I was holding the gun and it went off. And it's, it's just, it's a little glimpse of what happens inside of interrogation rooms with, he does not have a lawyer with him. He does not have a parent with him. He's 17 years old. He thinks he knows everything. <laughs> He's scared right. out of his mind. His best friend is dead. You know, it, it's all these things. Right. Um, which again, you know, going back to Isaac, it, it, it's kind of amazing to me that, that Isaac didn't break. He, he, he didn't do what they wanted him to do. And that, that's actually, I think, very rare. I think. A- absolutely. I mean, and it, and it's, so consistent with who he is as a person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and that's the thing that that part of the part of the story that I actually love, right? Is that you know he wasn't broken and he wasn't broken any step of the way. Was he traumatized? Absolutely. Was he beaten? Absolutely. Was he did he do things that he regrets to stay alive in prison? Absolutely. But yeah. he didn't he didn't do that thing. He didn't lie. And he, he would say, actually, to this day, he'd say, I really thought that I'd go to trial and they wouldn't have anything on me because they didn't do it. Right. He really, th- he actually thought that, you know, yeah. and then he sees what plays out and he goes to prison and he's meeting hundreds of guys that this has happened to, thousands of guys this has happened to, right? I mean, ugh, this yeah. is so sick. I just can't imagine how difficult it is for families to have two losses in effect first right. the loss of a loved one and then to go through this whole process again and right. knowing someone else's life has been ruined as well 
Well, that's it. That's my other like kind of line that I always say. The only thing worse than having a parent murdered is then finding out that a 17 year old boy has been wrongfully convicted for it, right? I, I mean, th th that's the only way you could make the story worse. And it did make it worse, a hell of a lot worse, right? For everybody. And ugh, just, yeah, just yeah. sick. Well, the fact that you and Isaac are now friends and co-authors of this amazing book and are sharing your story across the country and, and worldwide, that that's amazing. The fact that you've been able to come together and the forgiveness and acceptance. And that's also a unique part of, of yeah. these kinds of stories. Absolutely. Right. And trying to help other people get there. Right. I mean, get to that place where you can kind of make peace with whatever the screwy systems have done and actually working on reconciliation. Not an easy pr process at all. It isn't. But but it's better than the alternative, I have to say, <laughs> you know, which is to just be angry, bitter, confused, you know, helpless and feel like you can't turn to the justice system or anywhere. Right. Really, to, to make things right. You're just kind of stuck in a pile of dog crap, <laughs> you know. Check your local bookstore to purchase a copy of Fighting Time. The book is also available for purchase from any of your favorite online retailers. Thanks for listening to Proof Sidebar. Proof is back on Monday with episode 13. So tune in to find out what Charlie Childers really saw on the night that Brian Bowling was shot. If you have any questions for future sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can find me on Twitter at the ViewFromLL2 and on Instagram at SOOSemp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too at JacindaProof. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.